All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are now in Revelation chapter 16. We're going to skip chapter 15. I'm going to refer to it briefly. It's only eight verses. And I guess you can guess what this is about. (laughs) The seven bowls of wrath and Armageddon. Remember, we had the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and now the seven bowls. And we've been in in the interval between the seven seals and the seven bowls for a month, now forever, a long time. We're getting near the end now, the end of the Jewish age. And so we start with verse 1 in Revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth, on the land, the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now these are the seven bowls judgments. There are seven angels pouring out those bowls. This is in the temple. We read that in chapter 15. This is in the temple that John is seeing up in heaven. Now, Here is a couple verses in chapter 15 that show us this. Out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues. A sanctuary, of course, is where God lives. In the earthly tabernacle, it was the Holy of Holies. In the heavenly tabernacle, it was the sanctuary. So out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven bowls of judgment. They were dressed in clean, bright linen with gold sashes wrapped around their chest. That's just for theatrical effect. Revelation 15, 8, Then the sanctuary was filled with smoke from God's glory. That's the Shekinah glory. And from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now, we got plagues, we got wrath coming out of the sanctuary. Why is it that no one could go into that sanctuary while this process was taking place? Now, I'll give you a facetious answer that Steve gave when we were going over this before. He said it's because... God was going to be busy. He didn't want to be bothered. <laughs> but that is not the right answer. <laughs> so, yes, because the wrath of God's coming. You don't mess. You don't get into the presence of God when He's pouring out wrath because nobody can stand it. All right. Whoops. Let's go to verse two, Revelation sixteen. So the first angel went out and poured out his bowl on the land, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the sea beast and who worshipped his image. Now, for those of you who missed it, we, in, in chapter 13 we've talked about two beasts. The sea beast was the Roman Empire. The land beast was the false prophet, the land of apostate Israel. And the whole goal of the land beast was to get everybody to worship the sea beast. In other words, we need to say that we have no God but Caesar. We don't want the Messiah. We want Caesar. We want the pagan Roman Empire. So... The people who did that were those who had the mark on the, they took the mark of the beast, they worshipped the Roman Empire, and they, and and of course that was mainly referring to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so the first bowl was a malignant sore. Now it says a sore on the people. I don't know how you have one sore on a bunch of people, so I assume that each person that received this judgment had sores on them. Now, this was a fulfillment that Moses gave back in the law years before. Deuteronomy 28:27. this is the famous curses chapter. Remember Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim? And from Mount Ebal, they had some people reading the, the law out to the people, and the people were in the valley below, and... And the law would be read. It says, the Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt. And the, and the people below would say, the Lord will afflict us with the boils of Egypt. So it was a big deal that the Israelites would remember. Tumors, a festering rash and scabies. A dog has mange. Humans have scabies. It's the same thing. It's horrible. I could tell you about it at lunch if you want to know how horrible it is. Because <laughs> I've had it four times. But I was cured. But the people who violate the law will not be cured. (laughs) 
The Lord will afflict you with painful and incurable boils on your knees and thighs from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. Horrible judgment. And again, I think this is what John through the Holy Spirit is referring to, judgment on the land. Now, all these judgments that we got, seals, trumpets, and bowls. As I've said many times, the seals were a judgment on one-fourth of the land. The trumpets were judgments on one-third of the land. Now, we get to the bowls, it's 100%, everything. So the idea is not so much to find a different kind of judgment that's landing on Israel, on false Israel. It's to, find, it's to show the extent, the intensity of the judgments are increasing as time goes on because now we're near the end. All right, so that's the first bold judgment. Here's the second bold judgment in verse 3 of Revelation 16. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. And another thing to say about these judgments, too, is they, they focus on every aspect of Jewish life. The seas, the, the rivers, the springs, the trees, the grass, uh, also the, the mountains and earthquakes. And the whole idea is, man, things are going wrong. Nature's not even staying put disasters occurred. Now, a lot of people love, including preterists, love to say, okay, this is what the general prediction was. Well, let's see how we can see how it was fulfilled. Well, I'm going to do a little bit of that too, but I think the main thing to, to focus on when we go through this is this is symbolic of destruction. How it is carried out is really a minor detail. And notice also that the, this bold judgment on the sea and of course, the seas of Israel, the Mediterranean Sea, there's the Galilee, Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. This judge, bold judgment parallels the second trumpet judgment. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain ablaze with fire was hurled into the sea. The great mountain was Mount Zion when Jesus said, if you pray if, with faith in your heart and you say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, in the context of that, is obviously referring to apostate Israel because that's what he was talking about at the time, fig tree that didn't have any figs on it. And so the idea is Israel is going to be destroyed, hurled into the sea. Again, this is the sea judgment here. So a third of the sea became blood with the trumpet, and this, in this bold judgment, every living thing in the sea died. Now, the sea being judged, that all the living creatures in the sea died, you eat fish out of the sea, so their food supply is hurt. A third of the ships are destroyed. That's their naval commerce and so forth. But again, the whole idea is judgment. Whoops. Now, I will give you an example. This preterist quote this passage from Josephus all the time. And I want to do this to give you a taste of Josephus, so I would encourage you to read it. It's free. It's on the Internet. And uh, Josephus is very interesting. Now, this is an actual battle that happened in the Jewish war. It was between, I'm going to, to help you a little bit with this as we go through it, the flimsy, the sturdy boats of Vespasian, the sturdy rafts of Vespasian. He was the Roman emperor and the flimsy ships of the Jews. The Jews were outnumbered and they got caught in a battle on the Sea of Galilee. And there was Roman troops on the shore, there was Roman tr troops on the Sea of Galilee and the, the flimsy ships of the Jews got caught in between. They couldn't go to the land, they couldn't go to the sea. So here's... Here's what it says. Thousands of Jewish rebels fled to the Sea of Galilee, setting out on the lake in small flimsy boats. They were soon pursued and overtaken by the sturdy rafts of Vespasian's superior forces. Then they were mercilessly slaughtered. The Jews could neither escape to land where all were in arms against them, 
nor sustain a naval battle on equal terms. Disaster overtook them, and they were sent to the bottom, boats and all. Some tried to break through. That means they tried to break through the, the rafts of Vespasian. But the Romans could reach them with their lances, killing others by leaping upon their barks and passing their swords to their bodies. So if the Jews attacked the Romans, they just stood there with the, with the spears on their boats, got them. Or sometimes the Romans would go into the Jewish boats and spear them. And let's see where I was here. Uh, let's see, I was right here, I think. Sometimes as the rafts close in, the Jews were caught in the middle and captured along with their vessels. If any of those who had been plunged into the water came to the surface, they were quickly dispatched with an arrow or a raft overtook them. If in their extremity they attempted to climb on board the enemy's rafts, the Romans cut off their heads or their hands. So these wretches died on every side in countless numbers in every possible way until the survivors were routed and driven onto the shore. Of course, that's where the other Roman army was. Their vessels surrounded by the enemy. As they threw themselves on them, many were speared while still in the water. Many jumped ashore where they were killed by them. One could see the whole lake stained with blood. That sounds like a pretty good fulfillment of the sea is going to be covered with blood. And they were, it was crammed with corpses, the corpses the Sea of Galilee was, for not a man escaped. During the days that followed, a horrible stench hung over the region, and it presented an equally horrifying spectacle. The beaches were strewn with wrecks and swollen bodies, which, hot and clammy with decay, made the air so foul that the catastrophe that plunged the Jews into mourning revolted even those who had brought it about. Oh, what a scene. I wish I could have been there to see it. <laughs> I had a history professor do that to me one time. I thought I, 30 years ago, I tried to joke and it didn't work. <laughs> Except for you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, we uh, go to verse 4, Revelation 16. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of waters. Again, distinguish that from the sea. This is the, the, the creeks and the rivers, springs of waters. And they became blood. Same idea that was, we saw in the third angel. It's a great star that stands for um, the new Babylon falling from heaven. The old Babylon was in Isaiah 14 was a star. Blazing like a torch fell from heaven. It, it uh, fell on a third of the rivers and springs of water. And this was the water became more, the water became bitter. Again, the idea, the, the judgments are repeating themselves. But again, it's intensity. Because it says they, not a third, not a fourth, but they, 100% came blood. Now, the reason is, is because judgment is coming on the Jews because of the blood that they had shed. Still on the third angel here. I heard the, th I heard the third angel of the waters. Now what that means, angel of the waters, the angel that poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs. So he's, he calls him the angel of the waters. <clears throat> Say, you are righteous, who is and was the Holy One, for you have decided these things. Because... They, that means the apostate Jews, poured out the blood of the saints and prophets who gave them blood to drink. They deserve it. And if you'll think of it this way, you got all the Israelites who killed prophets all the time. That's all they did, as we'll see. So the prophet's blood sinks into the ground, gets in the groundwater, runs into the springs and, water, and rivers. And so, hey, you kill the prophets, you drink the water. You're going to get what you deserve. Because see, this angel, the third angel says, hey, they deserve it. Now, again, I point out to you the idea of imprecatory prayers 
or rejoicing over the judgment of God is something we don't do too much because we feel so sorry because, oh gosh, it's so terrible, the judgment. But not in the, not in the book of Revelation. Hey, thank you, Lord, for your judgments. Thank you, Lord, for avenging us. They deserve it. Now, let's look real quickly at how evil the apostate Israel had become. Now, this is a problem. I remember I had a problem with this, too, because, you know, I was raised, well, all Christians, the Old Testament is about the Jews and the Jews. That's where Christianity came from, and Jesus was Jewish, and the apostles were Jewish, and Judaism is good, and Moses is good, and that's true. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees completely perverted what God had set up, and we tend to forget that. Now, Jesus didn't forget it. This is what he says in Matthew 23, verses 34 and 35. This is why I'm sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. He's using Old Testament language for apostles, prophets, and evangelists. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and hound from town to town. The reason it says flog in your synagogues is the local synagogues actually had courts. You didn't have to go to Jerusalem to take somebody for blasphemy to the synagogue, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. You could do, go to a local synagogue and say, this guy's preaching the Messiah is a blasphemer. They take you in and they whip you after they accused you, of, after they convicted you of blasphemy. So all the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you from the blood, and that's probably shed on the land, I should have said that. All the righteous blood will be shed on the land will be charged to you from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. We won't go into how that happened, but the point is, is that the Jews were good at killing prophets. In fact, Luke says... In Luke 13, verse 33 and 34, first part of the verse, Jesus is talking. Luke records this. Yet I must travel today, tomorrow, and the next day, Jesus says, because it is not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. What he's saying is, listen, if a prophet's going to die, he can't die in Galilee. He's got to go to Jerusalem because they're good at it. They always kill the prophets. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. And Stephen in Acts 7.52, he's standing before the same Sanhedrin that killed Jesus, the same Pharisees and Sadducees, this is what Stephen says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. All the prophets in the Old Testament, they were prophesying about Jesus, the righteous one, the Messiah. How was the response? Bam, let's kill them. So they've been doing this through their history, and you're continuing, like father in the family tradition, And then the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Stephen Stephen was accused of blasphemy. And he turns around and says, you are murderers. You murdered. You committed deicide. You killed God himself. You killed Jesus. All right. So, verse 7, I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Now, the first question you might ask is, in verse 7, how can an altar speak? You ever worried about that? Well, it's because of the martyred saints who were below the altar. This is the bronze altar in front of the tabernacle in the earth. And, of course, John's seen this in heaven, too. And who were these martyred saints, or what were they saying? We see they are under the fifth seal in Revelation 6, 9, and 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, that means under and in front of, the altar, the people slaughtered because of God's word and the testimonies they had. They had. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? They're crying out for vengeance. They're crying out not for revenge, but they're crying out for justice. That was in the seals, but now we're at the bowls. And look at here. 
true and righteous are your judgments. They got, they got their judgment. They got their justice. And they're happy. They're praising God for it. Yes, O oh Lord, mighty, true, and righteous. How often do we do that? Go to verse 8 and 9 of Revelation 16. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power of all these plagues, and they did not, did not repent so as to give him glory. Now, of course, this is an easy symbol here. Fire is always the symbol of judgment. You could take it as being literally fulfilled when Jerusalem was burnt with fire in AD 70. It's bad. Now, notice, if you're being scorched with fire and you're getting burnt up, would you repent? I used to think that any time judgment came on somebody, people repent. They did not repent so as to give him glory. Some people will go straight into hell shaking their fist at God the whole way. And then when they get to hell, they say, I'm glad I'm here. Because I'm, I'm away from your presence, God. That's how nasty people are. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Now we go to Revelation 16, verses 10 and 11. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the sea beast. Now that sea is not in the Bible. I added that because that's my interpretation. I just want to point that out to you. It could be the land beast, but I think it's the sea beast. So the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the sea beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. The they there is those uh, apostate Jews who had taken the mark of the beast. They gnawed their, gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their, of their pains and sores, and they also did not repent of their deeds. Now, when, when you see the kingdom becomes darkened, that, again, is typical decreation rhetoric, which I've talked about a lot. When the sun goes dark, when the moon turns to blood, stars don't give the light, that means regime change, kingdom's over, you're done. And, and, I'm going to sh and this is very key to interpreting prophecy because it shows up in the Olivet Discourse a lot. And because of the way we, our minds have been trained by our Christian background, because of futurist teaching, is you've got to take it literally. So the moon comes dark, that means you literally have to picture nuclear dust going in front of the moon and making it red. And you've got to literally picture the sun going dark with an eclipse. And there's always this effort to try to show how these things are actually going to happen. It's easy to do when you're talking about the future because it hasn't happened yet. So you can say, well, it's going to be that way and I can't disprove you. But I can go back to the Old Testament and show all this decreation rhetoric. And they know, because they have the astronomical records all the way back there, that it did not happen literally when the prophets talked that way. So here's, the, I always go to Isaiah 13 first. Isaiah 13, 9 and 10. Look, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with rage and burning anger to make the earth a desolation and destroy the sinners on it. Indeed, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The stars are going dark. Does that mean that you look up one night and all of a sudden the stars go dark? There's no such thing as an eclipse of the stars, is there? I'm not an astronomer, but I don't think that, that ever happens. So this is obviously symbolic. The sun will be dark when it rises. You ever seen the sun come up in the east and all of a sudden, boop, goes dark? You think that's possible? The sun will be dark when it rises. That ain't going to happen, is it? So you can't take it literally. It's symbolic of the destruction of a particular kingdom. In this, this case is Isaiah 13, if I remember correctly, it was Babylon. <clears throat> the moon will not shine. Okay. Here's another one, Amos 8 9. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will make the sun go down at noon. You ever seen the sun go down at noon? Sun, whoop, right and high in the sky. What does it do? Come straight down on the earth? How does the sun go down at noon? 
It's not meant to be taken literally. I will darken the land in the daytime. Well, I guess you could say an eclipse could happen there. Now, let's look at Revelation 3.10. Because you, this is John or Jesus talking to the church in Philadelphia. You have kept my command to endure. I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come over the whole world. Now, I said that that was a sea beast. Again, you could read it, the land beast. But most of my commentators said the sea beast. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go that way because I think this is what he's talking about. We've been talking about judgment on the land of Israel over and over again. But you know, the Romans, they had their troubles too. Well, they, who killed, who nailed Jesus on the cross? Romans. Who, how about Nero? Yeah, he, he persecuted Christians pretty badly. Yeah. So are they going to get away with their murder of Jesus? No, they're going to get punished too, right? So let's assume that the sea beast is the kingdom that is having the lights go out on it. Revelation 3.10, John says this, You, the church in Philadelphia, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. That's the year of four emperors. 68 and 69, the Roman Empire had four emperors. Nero killed himself in 68, and then Galba takes over. He lasts seven whole months. And this is, and he's, we've already talked about him in the book of Revelation. He's talked about. And then there's Otho, and then there's Vitellius, and by then... They either were killed or assassinated. The armies are fighting each other. It was total chaos. You go to Wikipedia and type in the year of four emperors, and they got a whole article on it. I mean, it was a big deal for those of us who like Roman history or ancient history, a very big deal. In 69, the year before the temple went down to Jerusalem, in 69, the capital, the Capitoline Temple to Jupiter, the the Romans' big temple, their God, burnt to the ground. It would be like if Mecca, in Mecca, the, I forgot the name of it now, the Kabbalah, the, the place that the Muslims go to in Mecca. If, imagine what they would think if it burnt down. That's what the Romans felt like. That's what the Jews felt like. It, it would be like if we saw the White House and the Capitol and the Washington Monument all burn out, burn, fall down in one day. Big deal, Okay. So this hour of testing is going to be a short time, one year, an hour is a short time. It's going to come over the whole world. That means over the whole Roman world. And that's why the people in Asia Minor who were not in Jerusalem, they had their problems too. It's not just the people in Israel that were going to get judged. Also the, Roman, the Romans who were persecuting the Christians were going to get judged. Now, I gave you a little bit of Josephus. I'm going to give you some Tacitus. He's one of the key historians for the Roman Empire just so you can see how bad it was for the year of four emperors. This is describing the year of four emperors. Close by the fighting stood the people of Rome like the audience of the show, cheering and clapping this side or that in turns as, as if this were a mock battle in the arena. Whenever one side gave way, men would hide in shops or take refuge in some great house. They were then dragged out and killed at the instance of the mob, who gained most of the loot, for the soldiers were bent on bloodshed and massacre, and the booty fell in the, to the crowd. The whole city presented a frightful caricature of its normal self, fighting and casualties at one point, baths and restaurants at another. Here the spilling of blood and the litter of dead bodies close by, prostitutes and their like. All the vice associated with a life of idleness and pleasure, all the dreadful deeds typical of a pitiless sack. These were so intimately linked that an observer would have thought Rome in the grip of a simultaneous orgy of violence and dissipation. There had indeed been times in the past when armies had fought inside the city, no less cruelty had been displayed then, but now there was a brutish indifference and not even a momentary interruption in the pursuit of pleasure. 
as if this were one more entertainment in the festive season. They gloated over horrors and profited by them and careless which side won and glorying in the calamities of the state. This is in 68, the year of four emperors, which was part of 68 and part of 69 A.D., right before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. So was this the Romans fighting themselves? Yes, Romans fighting themselves. A civil war, horrible civil war. We go to verse 12, Revelation 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Now, this parallels the sixth angel, Revelation 9, 14, say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet released the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, this is earlier, I've, I mentioned when we were there, that the Euphrates River came up like this is Israel. Euphrates River came through Syria and it bends over to the west right here as it gets toward the mountains. And anybody coming from the east, they don't come across the desert because they can't, because it's a desert. They come up the fertile crescent and they cross the Euphrates rivers. And the Romans had forts all along the Euphrates to protect themselves from the Eastern Empire. And so that's where the troops came in the Jewish war to wipe out the Jews. That's why it says it comes from the east. It's actually the northeast, but they start, they're up here and they come from the east and come down from the north also. Now, to show this, oh, and let me back up. That, That was the trumpet. Now the sixth angel says that Again, there's going to be troops coming from the Euphrates. Titus, the first troops were with, were with what's his name? Cestius Galbus. Cestius Galbus. That's not right. Cestius Gallus. He was the one that came down first in 66. And then Titus, near the end of the war, he sent reinforcements down here at the end. And this is probably what this is referring to. Now, here's some quotes from Josephus in the Jewish wars, just to make this a little bit more real to you. Titus had auxiliaries now more in number than before together with a considerable number that came to his assistance from Syria. Again, remember Syria's from the northeast. So then not only does Titus draw troops from the Euphrates in the east, east, Euphrates, remember Josephus knew nothing about the book of Revelation. Josephus did not, was not a Christian. He's just talking about what happened in the Jewish war. He says the troops came from Euphrates in the east. But Antiochus of Forces, the king of Comagene, which was a, a little kingdom right there in the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea, right where Turkey runs into Syria, if you look at the ancient maps, he was one of those constituent kings of the Roman Empire. And Samosata, the capital of Comagene, lies upon Euphrates, or the Euphrates River. So, you see, that's why I like the Preterist view of Revelation. It tracks with history so good, so well. All right, let's go to, to verses 12 and 14. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the sea beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. <clears throat> now, I've got in brackets here, that's the land beast, apostate Israel, the false prophet is. I'm going to prove that to you right here, so just take my word for right now. Three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Now, we've got the unholy trinity of the three beasts, which we talked about in Revelation 13. You've got the dragon beast, that's the devil. You've got the sea beast, that's the Roman Empire. You've got the land beast, that's the apostate Israel. And all of them have got demons coming out of their mouth, or spirits that look like frogs, demon spirits. And all of those spirits are speaking one common demonic thing. Let's go over here to Israel. 
let's, uh, get, let's get all the kings of the whole world, let's gather them together for the war of the great day of God. Now, day of God is a symbol of judgment. You can go in the Old Testament, you've got days of God or days of the Lord for Israel, for Babylon, for Assyria. It's a common phrase. It does not necessarily mean the day of the Lord at the end of the world. It does not necessarily mean that. You've got to go by the context. So this great day of God is AD 70. The demons are bringing the kings of the whole world. Remember, I mentioned that Comagene and Antiochus IV, the capital of that particular uh, constituent nation of the Roman Empire, because that's where the troops came from. The auxiliary, auxiliary, auxiliary troops came from kings who had authority from the beast, but they did not have, they had authority with the beast for one hour, it says early in the book of Revelation. They came and and so that's who was coming to, to start this, well, to finish this Jewish war. The war of the great day of God. Now the word kings there, the singular is basileus, which it means king, but Thayer's lexicon says that word can also mean commander. So it could be commanders of the whole world, the world being the whole Roman world. Commanders of the, of the Roman Empire coming out to this great day of God. Now, Revelation 19.20 proves that the false prophet is the land beast. I'm going to save time. I'm going to just ask you to take my word for that. You can, you can if you want to, look at Revelation 19.20. It'll tell you that. So let's go to Revelation 16.15. Behold, Jesus continues, I am coming like a thief. Well, let's stop there. How does a thief come to steal? If a thief came into this place, I understand you've had several thieves come in here, right? Do they come in the daytime or do they come at night? Do they, do they give you a lot of warning? They come suddenly, right? This is what's going to happen to the Roman Empire. What happened to the Roman Empire was totally and utterly unforeseen. Nero kills himself, and then also they all start fighting. And then same thing with the, the Jews. 80, 70, 80, 66, the Jewish War. They were peacefully living with the Romans, just as happy as they could be, until the Romans sent over this nasty administrator in 66, and then started the war. So... It came happen, it happened fast. Remember, this is written about mid-60s or so. And so Jesus is telling everyone, look, I'm going to come quickly, fast, and unexpectedly, and it's going to happen, so get ready. Then he makes a sort of an obscure remark. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes, so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Now, what that's a reference to is the Old Testament practice. In the Old Testament, the Levites were in charge of temple maintenance. They washed the pots. They cooked a lot of the food. They did the singing. They had musical instruments. They collected money in the pots, and they did the accounting for the finance. They did all that. And one other thing they did is they performed temple police duty. They were security guards. And they would walk around at night to make sure nobody broke into the temple precincts. There was a supervisor, he had a special name, which I forgot, but the supervisor would go around to make sure that these security guards would stay awake. And if they did stay awake, the first time, they were beating, beaten severely. Bang, 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 bang. Wake up, do your job. So the supervisor would walk around some more, see him the second time, and if he's sleeping the second time, he says, come here, take your clothes off. The supervisor would take the clothes, light them on fire, and burn them up and say, go home. And so the security guard had to walk, it's a good thing it was at night, but he had to walk home naked. Very shameful thing. So that's what that's a reference to. All right. Now, ah, we get to Armageddon. 
Revelation 16, 16, and they gathered them, that's the three demon spirits like frogs coming out of the unholy trinity of the three beasts. Those demon spirits gathered them, that's the kings of the world, the, the leaders and the commanders of the Roman army, gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now let me just give you a heads up here. This is a symbol which refers to the bad stuff that's going to happen when Jerusalem is destroyed in AD 70. It is not a word that refers to the final battle at the end of the world. It has gotten into our vocabulary that way, and that's when we say, oh, it's Armageddon, that's the last battle. And that's not what John was talking about. Now, Har in the Hebrew is mountain. Megiddon is plain, so literally that's mountain of the plain, which is contradictory if you think about it. So what most people think that it means is Mount Carmel, which is right here. Unfortunately, it's right off the, the, my map, but remember how the coast line goes like this and it juts out a little bit into the sea. Mount Carmel is right there in that jut. So right there is the, the mountain of Megiddo and here is the plain of Megiddo. As you come down from that mountain oh there, there's the town of Megiddo right there and here's the right here there's a brook called Kishon and you go right here that's also called the Valley of Jezreel or the, or the plain of Megiddo. You come down here now, I'm going to give you a 30-second geography lesson. I'm going to give you a 30-second history lesson. I know you can do it, all right? If you were a, an Egyptian pharaoh and you wanted to come up here and fight Assyria, Babylonia, or Syria, or anybody up here, you had to go through Israel. And this is what you do. You come up through Egypt, and then you would get on the coast road. This is the Mediterranean Sea. And you come up. You go all the way to Mount Carmel, which is right here somewhere, and then you would take a right and you would come down this valley. Then you would cross the Jordan River and then you would go up to Syria and then fight up here. Remember the Euphrates River is right up here, okay? Now there was such a king. His name was Necho II. The history lesson starts in 609 B.C. 609 B.C. you got a southern king of Judah. His name is Josiah. You've heard of Josiah, right? Good King Josiah. Well, he hated Assyria because Assyria was the He's, the Syria's over here in the Fertile Crescent. Assyria, present-day Iraq. Assyria was the bad boy of the ancient Near East. When they killed people, they didn't just kill them. I mean, they tortured them and raped them. And they were horrible. And everybody was scared to death of them. And Assyria was in a death battle with Babylonia for the, for the supremacy of the Fertile Crescent, the Mesopotamian Valley. So, Necho says, I'm going to come up here and I want to help my good buddies, the Assyrians, beat the Babylonians. So, he came up the coast road and came up here to Carmel and, went, and he, was, he came down through the valley of Jezreel here and, he, and came down somewhere in this plain of Megiddo. Necho II, the Egyptian is. Well, Josiah says, no, 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 no. You're coming through Israel. You're going to help the Assyrians. No, I, we hate the Assyrians. The Assyrians hate Israel. We're going to take you out, Necho, because we don't want you reinforcing our enemies. So Josiah comes up from the south. He comes up here, and they have a battle somewhere in this valley. The name of the place is called Hadad-Rimon, which is lost. Nobody knows where it is, but somewhere it's somewhere in the valley. Well, who won between Necho II and Josiah? Necho II, the bad guy, won. So Josiah got killed, all right? Now, this is written up in Zechariah 12, 10 through 11. Zechariah is, promising, is prophesying about all the Jews who are mourning for what they did to Jesus. Okay, They're mourning about it. 
And that's not my main focus here. The point is they're mourning, and the mourning, Zechariah, compares to the great mourning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo, referring to the death of Josiah. So let me read that, Zechariah 12, 10 through 11. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. On that day, the mourning of Jerusalem will be great as the mourning of Fadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. This is referring to the death of Josiah. So you see, this was a big deal for the Israelites to lose their king. And when you, thought, when you talk about Josiah, 609 B.C., the battle of Megiddo, oh, no, that's terrible. It's awful. It's like we talk about Pearl Harbor or 9-11. It was that big. And so big, in fact, that in Second Chronicles, it was written up in the law that we're going to mourn for King Josiah every year. Second Chronicles 35, 25, Jeremiah chanted a dirge over Josiah and all the male and female singers will still speak of Josiah in their dirges today. That was about, I looked it up, about 89 years later, they're still doing it. They established those dirges as a statute for Israel and indeed they are written in the dirges. A statute. All right, so... When John in Revelation says they're going to gather together at a place called Armageddon, this is what the Jews think. They didn't read Hal Lindsey. They didn't read Tim LaHaye. They, were, they, they thought Josiah. It's going to be very, very sad for Israel, which it was. It was a terrible thing when Jerusalem burned down. Now we go to verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. This is like game over. It's over. It's completed. In fact, verse 15, previous chapter, chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. In other words, it's over. For them, with, with them, God's wrath will be completed. And this just illustrates that God is slow to anger, as the song we sang this morning said. He does his judgments progressively to give people time to repent. These people weren't going to repent. They did not repent of their deeds. They shook their fist at God, and God says, okay, this is where you're going to be. Bam, it's over. You've had it. Now we go to verse 18. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, as such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. Now earthquake is an easy symbol. That means judgment, earth-shaking. Mentioned eight times in the book of Revelation. I'm, to save time, I'm going to skip them, but it's in Revelation 6, Revelation 8, twice in Revelation 11, earthquakes, judgment on the land. We go down to verse 19. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Now, it was on a Wednesday night, and most of the kids were here, the young people, excuse me, who were here on Wednesday night, and we talked, and I said, I'm going to prove mathematically beyond a reasonable doubt to an absolute certainty that Babylon the Great refers to what? Yeah, and I did it, but I don't have time to do it now. You have to take the word for it or listen to the tape. <laughs> it's actually not mathematical. Some people actually try to weasel out of it. But it really is strong evidence that Babylon the Great is apostate Israel. Okay. Now, how was the great city, Babylon the Great, uh, Jerusalem, how was, I said apostate Israel, what I meant is Babylon the Great was apostate Jerusalem. How was the great city split into three parts? Well, this is, all the commentators say this, this is easy. It's referring back to Ezekiel 5. And let me just tell you to save time, Ezekiel was an exilic prophet. He was in Babylon 
before 586 BC, and he's prophesying back to the people in Israel, and saying, and he's saying, you guys better get ready. You're going to get destroyed. <clears throat> and so God told him to take a brick. There was a picture of the city on the brick. Then he told, God told Ezekiel to cut his hair and his beard, get all the hair divided into thirds. The first third, spread it around the city, light it on fire. And that stood for plague and famine that's going to wipe out Israel. The second third, he says, spread it around the city and beat it with a sword. That stands for all the people in Israel are going to be killed with a sword, fall by the sword. The third piece of hair, or bag of hair, the third of, the, of Ezekiel's hair was thrown up into the air. The wind scattered it. The winds were scattered. That referred to all the exiles that were going to come out of Jerusalem. That happened in 586 B.C. The same thing's going to happen in, in AD 70. And if you read Josephus, that's exactly what happened. First, the city was literally, it was, there was plague and famine all over Israel. And not only that, it was burnt up. Israel was burnt to the ground in AD 70. And they were killed and they were scattered to the wind. They were exiled. Josephus says most of them were sold into slavery to Egypt. So that was fulfilled. Now, most people, most preterist commentators also say that this three parts that the city was split into refers to three factions in Jerusalem during the Jewish war. One was led by John of Gashala, one by Eliezer the Zealot, and one by Simon the Edomenian. <coughs> Wikipedia has got a whole article on this fight because while Titus is besieging the city, inside the city they're having a civil war. Oh man, you talk about judge, you talk about disaster. And this civil war in itself is very, very interesting. It was so horrible, which we don't have time to go into, but I'm sure that's what it refers to. Now, one other comment here says the great city, that's Jerusalem, split into three parts, which I take to be these three factions, and the cities of the nations fell. And so this particular verse is what makes some preterist commentators say, ah, Babylon the Great's not Israel, it's the Roman Empire because of the cities of the nations, the nations being the Roman Empire. Well, so this is a problem for people like me. He says, no, Babylon the Great is the land of Israel, apostate Israel. And the, and the way I take this is, he said, look, the great city, Jerusalem, they got their problems. And this happened, by the way, let me tell you the date. This happened in 68 A.D. You look in Wikipedia, it'll tell you 68 A.D. is when this civil war happened. Well, what happened in the cities of the nations? What happened in the Roman Empire in 68 A.D.? The year of four emperors where the Romans were just being totally destroyed, okay? So I think that fits pretty good. Well, I just said that and didn't show you the slide, so sorry. Verse 20, every island fled away and the mountains were not found. That's typical decreation rhetoric symbolizing judgment. All right, we get to 21. I'm a little bit late, but let me, give me just a second here. Uh, this is the last verse. John says in verse 21, huge hailstones about 100 pounds. And some translations say 75 pounds, but that doesn't matter. The Greek is one talent, which is basically a heavy unit of Greek weight. These stones each came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extreme severe. Now let me just tell you real quick to say from reading that, that's from Josephus. But what would happen is that the people in Jerusalem would see these stones that the Romans were catapulting at them, and they were white, and they could hear, they could hear the sound, and so they'd start looking, and then they'd see the white stone come, and then they'd say, look out. But what they would say instead of look out, they would say, the sun is coming, S-O-N. 
the sun is coming. Now, why would pagan Jews, non-believing Jews, why would they say the sun is coming when they saw a rock coming? Well, the theory is, is that they knew about Jesus' prediction on the Olivet Discourse. They knew that Jesus says, I'm coming in the clouds on judgment. I'm coming. I'm coming. The sun. And so when they saw it, they were, they were blaspheming Jesus. They would say, ah, sun's coming. And they would dodge. So that's kind of interesting. Because remember, Josephus, he might have known about Jesus saying that. I'm not sure. But he's not a Christian. But he, but he just mentions this going through. All right? What's the application of all this? First of all, imprecatory prayers by Christians are biblical. Remember the third angels of the rivers and waters says, they deserve it. If God judges America and destroys this country, are you going to say, God bless America, or are you going to say, we deserve it? Judgment doesn't necessarily bring repentance. The fourth bowl, which was fiery heat, didn't bring repentance to the people. The fifth bowl, which was darkness, they didn't repent. It says so right in the verse. The seventh bowl with hail, which we just read about, they didn't repent then either. So, is it right to pray God made judgment fall on that person so they repent? I used to pray that way until I realized, no, that's not right. You don't ever pray for judgment on something. That's God's business. I say you don't ever pray. I guess if you, no, I shouldn't say that. You you shouldn't pray for judgment on somebody that you care about and love and want them to get saved. I don't think you should do that. But if you want to pray on a system or a government or something like Adolf Hitler or whatever, that's that's fine. But it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to repent. Even if Satan drives nations to evil, God is over Satan. I didn't mention this, but those three frogs that came out, the three beasts, the unholy trinity... They drove the kings of the, of the Roman Empire to, to Jerusalem to have the great war of, of, the, of God. The demons did that, but who's over the demons? God is, because God wanted to bring justice to the saints in Jerusalem and wanted to destroy the Roman Empire too. Uh, are we willing to stand firm in the face of today's persecution? Here's a likely scenario in, in America. You teach your kids that a boy is a boy, a girl is a girl. Whoa, you teach that in school and... The state finds out about it and says, well, you're no longer qualified to teach your kids. You're going to have to quit doing it. That's very foreseeable. How about this? Tax-exempt status of Christian institutions are revoked. I just saw something on the Internet just this morning. It says the overwhelming, the, the, I shouldn't say overwhelming, the majority of the majority party in this country, which controls the whole country, is by non-believers, by their own admission. They actually debated, did God exist? There's even a section when, in their convention where they mentioned God and people started booing. Have you seen that video? Yeah, that's what we're facing today. Let's say you preach against gay marriage, you're persecuted for hate speech. Steve told me about somebody up in New Jersey that he knows or read about. They're persecuting for hate speech. Are we willing to say, no, we will not take the mark of the beast? We're going to say what we're going to say. We're going to preach what we're going to preach. And if you don't like it, you'll throw us in jail, but we're going to do it. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www. .ntrf.org May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.